Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I will be your host for today, and we're going to be talking about responsibility, accountability, and authority, three items that should be of great interest to you as a cybersecurity leader. If you are following us on LinkedIn, that's great. If not, please do so, because we put out a lot more than podcasts. We have a very high signal to low noise ratio of information. Also, consider subscribing to us on YouTube so you can go ahead and get the delivery this way. Otherwise, thank you for being a listener, and let's get going. So the concepts of responsibility, accountability, and authority, they sort of sound intertwined. And to a certain extent, if I stayed, okay, stop and think about it. Can you differentiate between the two? What's different between responsibility and authority or authority and accountability or responsibility and accountability? And, and you might end up with definitions that sort of become circular. Well, this is very important because what we're going to find out is that in a role as security leader is not much different than a role in leadership in pretty much any other job. It's just to a different level of intensity as to where that bounds of our control lie. Uh, as you probably see over the top of my head, if you're watching on YouTube, I've got my little shadow box there from uh, 30 years of misspent youth in uniform uh, with the Navy. And during that career, I've had a couple interesting opportunities. A little over 20 years ago, I was a national director for the Reserve Officer Leadership Course. And what we did is we provided leadership training for the officer corps in the Navy Reserve. Uh, subsequently, I took command of the Center for Naval Leadership. And I was the first CEO at their headquarters to build out this program to provide the same level of leadership training to the reserve force that we had for the active duties. And so for me, leadership and leadership training is very dear to me because it's something that I have had experience with, uh, plus also the privilege to have nine command tours in the military. gives you a unique perspective on how things are done. Uh, and in particular, I will refer a little bit to the military because there you'll find out that the lines of control are a little bit better defined. Uh, they're established in both federal law as well as regulations, and there is a certain level of um, formality to it that may be different than in the corporate environment where you know, things happen and uh, stuff like that. But let's go ahead and start with some foundational information first uh, to try to build that up and to talk about the, those, those three concepts, R, A, and A. Uh, then we're going to take a look at a little bit about how they play out, how they might interact, how that influences power, the types of power that you might actually be able to wield or have other people that are wielding on you. And then we'll apply that to our roles as a CISO. So let's start out first of all with the concept of responsibility. The definition, if you will, is one's duty or your task or your mission. It's something to which you are obligated to perform. Okay. Or it could be liable to be called on or answer account to because you're the primary cause or you're the agent of something. Uh, and so that also means that you're liable to legal review or in the case of fault, potentially penalties. And so what we find then is that the idea of responsibility means that at the end of the day, it's your job. Now, responsibility could be great. You could be responsible as the president of the United States of America, all the way down to responsible for taking out the garbage. But with that responsibility comes in a clear delineation of what is your task or your mission. And 
if you do not know what your task or your mission is, or it's not well-defined, or it's a little bit fuzzy, then the responsibility part is a little bit difficult. Because then what you find out is that you might end up, well, getting blamed for something that you had really no control over. And that's one of the concerns we have as a CISO. We'll take a look at other things, but also in general, we'll see that how responsibility, accountability, and authority work together. But at the end of the day, if you're in a leadership role, you're responsible for mission accomplishment. I also say, well, actually mission accomplishment is responsibility for every job you have, even if it's taking out the trash. But in addition, if you're a leader, one of your additional responsibilities, which is probably not written down anywhere, is to develop your people. It's what differentiates you as a leader from just a mere manager, for example. If you were taking the time to invest in your people, their future, their skills, their expertise, doing stuff like we're doing right now, trying to improve your knowledge and ability to execute uh, not only the tasks, but your job or your career, but your life, then you're doing leadership. And so as a responsibility, we find out that this is a tasking that's been given to it. We're obligated to complete it. And you're responsible for making it happen, kind of a circular definition, I guess. But as we understand what happens is that if you don't do it, you're in trouble. Now, let's differentiate that from the concept of authority. Now, authority coming from the Latin auctoritas, meaning an opinion, a decision, influence, power. It's basically authority is the ability to act. Now, it's a power of influence, or you can command the thought, you can behavior, but why is it important? In some cases, formal authority is provided by law. And so a judge is given formal authority. And when that judge says something, well, by golly, that's kind of what's backed up. Our society has a system of laws which allows us to operate as a society. But the question is, is that in your organization, is there some sort of a formal authority? Usually when we get hired, we get a letter. Here is your job. Here are your job responsibilities. Here's what you're going to be doing, etc. And a lot of times when we get a responsibility designated to us, do we have the authority to go with it? Because the authority, if you will, gives us the teeth to be able to make things happen. And so authority as a noun is a decision taken as a precedent. That's precedent. This is the authority. This is what's happening. We're going to repeat this and we're going to do it on a regular basis. As compared to a verb, which is a power to influence or to command or to make things happen, and so if we understand that it could be a thought or an opinion or a behavior, how does authority relate to us? Uh, if it's the power to do something, that's great. But can authority well be delegated? I mean, to a certain extent, authority is the freedom that's granted by seniors to allow subordinates or other individuals to go ahead and have influence over others. And it could be positional. It could be written into your job as a CIO, as a CISO, as a CEO. We have certain requirements that come out there that give us authorities. And there also are informal authorities, if you will. Uh, we'll get into the sources of power. But when we talk about power, one of the sources of power is positional power, or formal authority. And this is pretty much where you come into from it's in my job. See, this is the title. This is what I have to do. And also... There are other things that we can look at for sources of power uh, that is going to cause people to become authorities. And, and we'll look into that in a couple of minutes. But right now, understand the difference, if you will, between responsibility, which is you are liable for getting something done, and authority, which means that you have the capability to control the resources to get that thing done. Now, as I say, you can delegate 
responsibility. I'm responsible for making the office clean, and I can say, okay, your responsibility is to take out the trash. Okay. You could also have, and somebody here's a chart. Okay. I could also have the authority to say, you go take out the trash. And I'm using very simple examples here to try to keep it uncomplicated. And that works too. But then the question down comes into what about accountability? See, accountability, if we define that, is a liability for outcome or an obligation to answer for the consequences of an action because accountability is going to set standards and expectations at a personal level, followers, organizational, even in your society. So if we think about accountability, it's an obligation or a willingness to accept the responsibility and, if you will, account for your actions, answer up to them. And now let's think about it. I could delegate the responsibility, go take out the trash. I have the authority over my office staff to say, hey, go take out the trash. And they understand, yeah, I'm the boss. But what about the accountability? At the end of the day, if the trash doesn't get taken out, who's on the hook? Well, it's you. Because you can't go to your senior and say, well, he didn't do it, so um, don't blame me. That's not leadership. Uh, that's, that's just basically blaming. And that's one of the things you need to learn very quickly is you accept the accountability for what you are given. Now, the difference, if you will, between some of these responsibilities, which could be fuzzy in our, our business world and in the military world from which I came from, is if you go back and look, for example, for my reference from Navy regulations, Article 0802, the responsibility of the commanding officer for his or her command is absolute. And the authority of the commanding officer is commensurate with his or her responsibility. So what we find out then is what the military does is they're going to go ahead and they're going to connect the concept of responsibility with authority. We're not going to make you responsible for something for which you do not have the authority to execute. It'd be kind of ridiculous to say, okay, you're, you're responsible for the safety of the ship, uh, but you're not allowed to issue any orders. You can't issue commands. You can't say go left, go right, go port, go to starboard. Um, it's interesting though. we kind of take a look at, for example, Hunt for Red October and the old Soviet model where you had a commanding officer, but you also had a political officer. And the political officer was someone who reported directly back to the Kremlin and was designed to, well, make sure that the commanding officer, well, the whole crew, I suppose, were loyal to the party and did what they're supposed to do. And so if you remember the theme from this, the plot from the Hunt for Red October, when the captain decides he's going to defect, who's the first person you got to take out, right? The political officer, because that's a person who kind of like, if you remember the old Stratego game, he played it as a kid, he had general and then marshals and colonels all the way down. Like we had a spy, one spy that could go ahead and uh, take out uh, things like that. You want to go ahead and take out the number one guy. You want to take out the marshal, you need a spy. You want to go take out the flag. Anybody can get to it, but usually surrounded by bombs. You need the miners. Okay, fine. So I'm, I'm regressing a little bit. If you ever played that game, you remember it. But the point is, that there is clear lines of who can do what. And if you have the responsibility and the authority that are put together, then we can hold you accountable. And part of the difficulty, I think, in some of the cases, and we're going to take a look at a couple in a moment, is that is that accountability tied to a correct assignment of responsibility and authority. See, ultimately what we're talking about is a concept of power. And power is going to be the ability to exercise control. Now, 
French and Raven came out with a, a paper, uh, might have been a book, I haven't been able to find it, but it's referenced several places back in 1960 called Forms of Power. And in that, they identified forms of power, five of them, and subsequently added a sixth one in 1965. And I'll give you even a seventh one. And then you go ahead and you Google forms of power, you'll see five, six, seven. Someone was called with eight, and that's a whole new book. Well, good for them. But let's take a look at what this was written over 60 years ago to get a general idea because people, for the most part, don't change. The first type of power is legitimate power, as they described by French and Raven. It's also called positional power. It happens when someone's in a higher position, they give them control over others. Now, if you have this power, it's essential to understand it was given to you, and it can be taken away. So don't abuse it. It's interesting because its position gives us an opportunity. So a couple of years ago, I was uh, up in New York City. I was, for those of you who know me, I was a first responder on 9-11, and we were invited with some of our 9-11 first responders to participate in the Veterans Day Parade. It was just interesting getting a chance to march up Fifth Avenue. And I remember talking to one of my soldiers. We were together back in 2001, and here we are 20-plus years later. And we were in uniform. We dig them out. We are retired, but they still fit. That's good. And people are cheering and waving and things like that. And I call him aside, and, I, and he's kind of like, oh, this is great. This is wonderful. And I said, you know... They're not really cheering for you. They're not cheering for me. They're cheering for what we represent. It's this position that we have. And wearing the uniform, here we are in a role that says we defend America. If we were not in our uniforms walking down the parade, the police would be pulling us right off the street. It's not because they recognize you or me. It's because of who we represent. So understand that when you're assigned a level of positional authority or power, that is this trust. And if you breach that trust, it could be taken away from you. So don't abuse it. The second form of power would be coercive power. Uh, basically, fear and being able to force people to do stuff. Uh, you bully them around, you scream at them, you yell at them. People do it just because they, well, they don't want to deal with you. Or you just go ahead and create that. Now, you don't build credibility with coercive influence, do you? People will go ahead and they'll be compliant they're not necessarily going to be committed to it. And so the compliance says, I'll do what I have to. If you ever see organizations where people do like the absolute minimum and then that's it, and we go back and the kind of the old models that we used to kind of joke about, although it may or may have been apocryphal, are the concept of the old Soviet central planning model, which says, okay, each glass factory, you have a quota. You have to make so much because people are making glass like that. Well, you have to make so many square feet of glass. Well, if that exceeds what you could normally do, what do you do? You make it super thin, so you bet the square feet, but it breaks like crazy. They said, all right, well, that didn't work. Okay, you have to produce so many kilograms of glass. Got it. Boom, there you go. One gigantic kilo of glass and a giant hump. And so what happens then is if you try to take away people's ability to make their independent decisions, you will do it or else, do it or else, do it or else. Coercive power works, but the fear will not win you any respect and it will not win you any loyalty. And as a result, it's a temporary type of a capability. It's when I find that people who don't have the ability to have any other types of capability, like charisma or whatever, they may rely to fear or coercion, or it may seek because it worked in the past and it's going to work in the future for them. But you wonder sometimes how do people get to those positions of authority and ending up being bullies or coercive. And the end result is probably a couple things. One is results. Uh, people will do things. Uh, maybe just to get out of there. Okay, fine. I completed my assignment. I did 
extra work because I just don't want this person to do, oh, wow, wow, what a great leader. Look at all the great performance and things like that. But be careful about that. And you probably have all worked for someone who tends to do the coercion. You might do some of it yourself. Recognize, though, that that's short of the, sort of a short straw in the pack of leadership tools and be careful about that. And if you find yourself relying on that, rely on it a little bit less. The third form of power is expert power, your top level skills, your years of experience. Uh, your peers will respect you for that. When we have things like a CISSP, I used to joke because I used to teach CISSP for ISC squared, wow, long time ago, 20 years ago. And uh, yeah, what was interesting is that I used to joke, if you didn't know what CISSP meant, you're impressed by it. But if you really knew what it meant, you aren't that impressed. Now, not to go against anybody who's got their CISSP or ISC squared, who's built a wonderful certification program. Because I remember I wrote my master's thesis back in the 1990s about building a multi-level hands-on security certification system that would allow us to go ahead and prove who really knew our security. And at the time, the only cert out there was CISSP. So I took it to Jim Duffy, who was a guy running it, and I said, hey, what do you think about this idea? I put a lot of thought into it. I've actually turned it into a, a master's thesis. And he looked at it and he said, Mark, we couldn't do this because most of our people are just book smart. They can pass the test, but they're not going to be able to put something on a bench and go do that. Well, coincidentally, Stephen Northcutt came up with virtually the same idea around the same time, uh, but instead he went ahead and uh, got to touch with uh, the late Alan Paller, and they built out the GIAC SANS. So anybody who holds a SANS cert, a very respected certification, uh, can credit that Steve's almost concurrent vision with actually doing it, which to me tells me there's no such thing as a million-dollar idea, just a billion-dollar action. So if you have a bright idea... Don't sit on it because a couple of years later, you're going to watch on TV and someone's going to be doing this thing. And you're like, I thought of that. So I believe you thought of it. But that person spent two years in the garage eating macaroni and cheese while they build it out. So expert power gives you influence. Could be advanced degrees. It could be certifications. Could be initials after your name. But notice that this is not positional power. It's not, for example, in the military, the stripes that you have, but the Expert comes from your knowledge and what you do, and people say, wow, they're an expert because they got this master's degree, PhD, certification, etc." And that is a source of power. People turn to you that way. And the nice thing is about this, is unlike positional power authority, no one can take this away from you. It's something that you hold. But if you remember G. Mark's law, half of what you know about security will be obsolete in 18 months. To remain an expert, you need to continuously be learning and improving. So this is not, I get there and I'm done. This is, okay, welcome to this level, but you have to keep paddling upstream or you're going to start to drift. A fourth type of power, which actually was added by French and Raven in 1965, is informational power. It's a short-term power that doesn't necessarily build your influence or uh, credibility, but you might know something that somebody else doesn't know. And as a result... Uh, you're going to be controlled, consulted because you've got it. Now, the thing is, is that this is a short-term expertise. It's a short-term power, if you will, because eventually this information is going to get out. Uh, I remember years ago, so I think it was, well, I'm going to date myself on this. In 1985, I was working on my first master's uh, at George Washington University, and Lance Hoffman, who is a professor, I think he's now a professor emeritus, distinguished guy, great, great professor, he said, Mark, you'd want to get involved in something. I have this invitation to uh, be part of some uh, committee reporting to Congress. I'm too busy. Do you want to do it? Well, sure. Okay. And so this is the uh, Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, OTA. And they're looking at 
uh, issues with regard to social security and the computer programming and things like that. So I start getting all these big government envelopes addressed to Dr. G. Mark Hardy. And it's like, I'm not a doctor. I don't even have my master's yet. Uh, but because it came from Dr. Lance Hoffman, I guess it went over to it. And what we're looking at was essentially a lot of the computer programs that were running, that were critical, were running on old mainframes and their old punch card decks, but they were written in obsolete languages, running on obsolete equipment, and there was no modern equivalent and no documentation. And the hesitancy, apparently, from what I remember from these things years ago, was that the folks who had written it didn't want to document it because then it would be rewritten and they'd be out of a job. So they wanted to keep their nice, cushy government jobs, show up at 9, 4.30, drop the pen, go home. And uh, not, not to say anything disparaging about a government uh, employees, but kind of the concept that we like to think about of somebody being able to not take the job home, not stress about it over the weekends, not have to go ahead and reach into your pocket and keep the government running by mortgaging your house like you would with a small business. There are advantages and disadvantages, of course, to every situation. But in this particular case, the informational power that these particular programmers had were they were the only ones who knew how the software worked. So think about it in a way, if you find people that know something and they're going to hang a secret or well, you got to get me in on it, I'm going to let you know about it. That does last, but it's only temporary. A power of reward is another source of power because I can motivate people, can provide you with a raise, a promotion, a bonus. And in the military, for example, you could go ahead and do rewards and, and offer decorations, medals, and citations, and things like that. Now, managers has a certain amount of reward power because why? You're filling out the performance reviews. You're saying, okay, this person did ex exceeded standards. They're above, da -da 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 -da, and therefore I'm recommending them for whatever the raise or the bonus can get. All right. Now, when you're talking about finances, uh, all of a sudden power has a whole new meaning. Money attracts people's attention. It also keeps people sticking around. If your organization issues annual bonuses, and let's say they come out in February, well, what month do you get most resignations or people moving on? Probably March, because they're just hanging in there to get their bonus. Now, if you spraced it out over 12 months and you said, hey, congratulations, you've got a 25% bonus, and that means there's going to be a, a, a 2.08% increase in your paycheck for the next 12 months. It's not as much fun as getting a big hunk of money. But it might convince people to stick around a little bit more. So that power of reward can either be womp, do it or not. Um, another type of power is what's called referent power. It's probably one of the most valuable things you can do. And it's how you build relationships. It's your personal values, your, your traits. Are you honest? Do people think of you as someone with integrity? Are you trustworthy? Do things get done when you say they're going to get done? And from this, you actually earn this power. You earn it as a form of respect. And people know that you're the person who gets stuff done. You're the person who can be depended upon to report back and be honest about things, to be truthful and to make things happen. It's probably one of the most valuable kinds of power because you control that and it's how you build and develop relationships. And one other type of power they can add, and again, there's probably others as well, is connection power. We're seeing this today. Okay, LinkedIn, we've got 25,000 plus sub followers on LinkedIn for CISO Tradecraft. That's really cool. But that connection power allows us to provide influence over other people. 
And by being a resource, by helping people with their jobs, their careers, their insights, their knowledge, et cetera, in return, we're trusted with these connections. And these connections then allow us to go out and say, hey, look, we're in a position of power, so to speak, that if a company says, we want to be on a sponsored episode on CISO Tradecraft and uh, we'll pay to be there. Why? Because they know that we can reach a large audience. And as you know, this is an educational program, but we do bring on sponsors from time to time, A, because it helps pay the, pay the rent, but also because it's getting messages out that we think are important that help you understand different elements of your job and things such as that. So we have then is a set of power sources, legitimate or positional power, your job description, coercive power, do it or else, expert power, Look at my, I love me wall, all the things I've done. Information power, which is going to be stuff that I know. I've, I've got a secret. The reward power, I can make things better for you. Referent power, I am a person that's trustworthy and I, I'm reliable. And the concept of a connection where I could go ahead is um, know that because I have all these great connections. Now, by the way, that connection power is sort of interesting because it, in a way, is one of the keys to the corner office. What do I mean by that? As I mentioned to you, I had the privilege to go ahead and, and serve a lot of leadership roles in the military. Uh, the Reserve Officer Leadership Course program was started by a friend of mine, John Cotton, who retired as a vice admiral. Uh, he passed that on uh, to Gar Wright, who retired as a rear admiral, who passed it on to me, who retired as a captain. And not knowing then what I know now, the power of networking and the power of being able to have those connections is at the end of the day, if you're trying to compete for a promotion or you're, there's, you want to be a CISO of a really large organization, you say, hey, I want to go for that brass ring and be CISO of a major financial organization. You could have the world's best resume. You could interview great. You could actually be the best qualified candidate in every other job. Because at the end of the day, when you got two or three different people up in front of you and they're all experts, they're all excellent. But someone's going to say, yeah, I know her. I, we worked together at this other company. Yeah, we were together over there. Yeah, she went to grad school with me. Blah, blah, blah. How about this guy? Looks really good. Looks good on paper. It's going to be the person that you know. It's just kind of how politics works. Not electoral politics, but politics of organizations. And so you really need to understand that although you may be doing everything else right, if you're not getting what you want, it might be because you haven't figured out how to go ahead and build those relationships. Go back and listen to some of my other episodes that I've talked about uh, that I get into a little bit more detail to help you out with your career. Now, let's bring it home with regard to being a CISO. Uh, one of the biggest concerns I think we have as security leaders or CISOs is that you have all the accountability and perhaps none of the authority. For example, if you look around and say, good developers, developers report to managers who report to whom? The CIO. I, I don't see the CISO in that chain of command. And so what happens, you don't have any direct authority over these people. Uh, there's nothing in that uh, line of responsibilities that would do that. And also if the CISO reports to the CIO, which is, it can be overruled. He said, hey boss, this is a problem. And I said, look, look, you shut up. I'm, I'm under the gun. If I don't get this thing released by the 1st of April, uh, they're going to be getting a new CIO. And I tell you what, I'm not going to lose my job because you can't keep your mouth shut. So you be quiet or your job's on the line. Well, that's a conflict of interest, and yet it's still uh, the majority of CISOs report to a CIO. And I'm not saying CIOs are bad, but there's an inherent conflict of interest for the CIO when given advice by a CISO who says, this is bad, this is risky, and there is a mandate from on top to get it done or else. Now, ideally, a CISO would report into that 
higher authority to say, look, what you've given to the CIO is risky for the organization. You want this thing by the 1st of April. I get it. However, to do it by the 1st of April, it's not possible to put in all the controls and reduce the risk to an acceptable level. And you're going to have to go ahead and either take an extended deadline or accept more risk. Your call. I'm just here to help you make an informed management decision, executive decision, but you need to know. And if you've done that, you've done your role correctly as a CISO. Now, let's take this situation a step further. Developer builds a website, it's built in securely, it gets hacked. Now, of course, what's the thinking process it takes at the top? Well, why didn't we detect this thing at first? Um, hey, CISO, come on. You're supposed to detect all these vulnerabilities. You have all these tools. We fund you every year. You're doing all these DAST and SAS and everything else like that. Why aren't you figuring this stuff out? Well, now we're going down sort of a dark path where now the CISO is going to own all the risk and own all that responsibility for everything that goes wrong. But they don't have any authority to do anything about it. And we start to see things like that, that with the CISO is the one who gets fired when a breach occurs, not the developers, not their management team, not the CIO. Um, so then here's the issue is that how do we resolve that? And so let's talk about ways of changing the culture within our organization. What is some, what makes something valuable? If we think about it in economics, it's simple supply and demand. And we see that going through economic cycles right now, if there is a restricted supply of ships that could do AI processing, and there's a huge demand for it, what happens to your NVIDIA stock to the moon? And we'll see if that equalizes. Of course, that's going to come back down again. But if we can take a look at supply and demand, typically when the supply is up and the demand is down, prices go down. When the supply is down and the demand is up, prices go up. Pretty basic macroeconomics. Now, if you want to hire a CISO in an organization and there's only you're at the top end, so you're only going to pick from 10 potential candidates because you have all these requirements in here. Well, guess what? They're much more expensive. You want a CISO for a uh, a Citicorp or J.P. Morgan Chase or something like that, it's not going to be 10,000 candidates that are well qualified for that. The supply is going to influence the value of something. And as a result, if you have that shortlist resume, you can command a higher rate because more people want you. If you're a consultant, how do you figure out what your rate is? Well, you pick something that's reasonable till people start hiring you and then you start raising it because you can't work 90, 100, 200 hours a week, just doesn't exist. And then what you find out is that the higher rate is a discriminator. So the people who really want you are willing to pay for it. It's not about greed necessarily. It's more about scheduling because I could do, I could have infinite amount of work at $8 an hour doing what I do, but that's not really the life that I'm looking for. And similarly, if you've invested in yourself and you created some value that you can share with others, there's a value there. Now, what happens, though, is that if you're a CISO and you've only got one shot at it, you're looking for a job and you've only got one company that's going to be willing to hire you, you don't have a whole lot of leverage on that one. And so as a result, what you want to be able to do is to create value for others. And if you create value for others, then our lives and our careers are meaningful. Think about it. Because if you're only in it for yourself, then you really don't have that great of a value proposition. I know some people just say, how much money am I going to make? Not how much difference can I make? How much value can I add? How much do I get paid? How many vacation days do I get? Do I get my birthday off? Can I go ahead and take a long weekend? Can I get a sick day? Things like that. I've been a entrepreneur for a lot of years. The last time I got a W-2 paycheck, other than the military, 
uh, was when I got hired at Ernst & Young to run the Wall Street security practice in September of 2001. That's where that story, and another time over, perhaps in person over an adult beverage. But what we find then is that when you're living, using a Navy term, outside the lifelines, those wires that keep you from getting washed over shore or falling overboard, when you live outside the lifelines, there's no nothing protecting you, uh, then all of a sudden it's a different form of incentives. You always are going to add value because if you don't add value, you're not going to get work. You don't get work, you're not going to get paid, you don't get paid, you don't get money, you don't get money, can't buy food, can't buy food, you get hungry, you get hungry, you go ahead and find a way to, to create value and it's a virtuous cycle. And so when you think about it though, if you're going to get a job and someone's going to pay you, whether it's $100,000, $500,000, I want one of these CISO jobs with a half a million dollar package and they're out there. How much value do you have to provide to that organization to justify a $500,000 salary? Plus, of course, the company has to pay your benefits and their social security and the Medicare and the unemployment, and they have to provide you with an office, probably give you insurances to cover all that, a 125 cafeteria plan, a uh, SCP, and you add them all up. The loading is at least two to one and sometimes more than that. Um, healthcare being a big kicker in there, although some of it's fixed cost, some of it's variable. So if I have a $10 hour employee, a $1,000 hour employee, their healthcare costs may be similar, but it's a bigger portion of this person as a percentage, but you get the idea. But you want to think about that, is that if, if you go with the 2X, if you want to be paid X, you better generate at least 2X and probably more. There needs to be a margin in there. So how can you show that if you're going to want to be uh, worth a certain amount of money that you're worth two and a half times that. Can you articulate your value proposition to the organization? If you can, great. How do we do that? Let's think of our sources of power. One of the, what's the source of power that nobody can take away from you? Expert power. Get your certifications, get your degrees, get those initials and things like that. And so all of a sudden what you find out is that you are able to go ahead and prove that you are a certain amount of value. At the end of the day, there's a difference between real life experience and book learning. We all know that. But Another way you can prove that is to go ahead and do a good job. If you govern well, if you've been given a small amount of resources and you've delivered maximum value out of it, you don't waste stuff. Well, that's pretty good. That's a value. Now, how do we demonstrate value? As a CISO, we report how many vulnerabilities we have. Okay, people clicked on a phishing exercise. We had an IT finding and that this went wrong and stuff like that. But you know what? These are negative metrics. Every time we share them, they show risk. But they basically are showing that somebody has made well, a bad decision. Now, consider, can you flip the script? Can we say about, here's how many cyber attacks we stopped. Now, I had always argued that the board or the executives don't care about the fact that we had 82,617 emails last month or last week or yesterday, depending on how big you are, of which 41,613 were spam. 11,312 were potentially malicious or um, phishing emails and stuff like that. And we blocked, uh, left that up. You know, all those now you get lost. But you can sometimes bring it in a little bit to take your IT security element into it. Let's say, for example, you had 100 people forward emails they thought were phishing attacks. Our incident response team reviews those 100 emails. 50 of them were spam. Okay, fine. Yeah, no what? 50 of them were real phishing attacks. So what did we accomplish this month? With our IT team, we stopped 50 legitimate attacks, if such a thing exists, that our tools did not catch. This has got past all the technology. 
because, well, let's think attackers come up with new ideas and they buy the same stuff we buy and they keep tinkering around with like, hey, that one worked. Okay, great. Let's launch it. And so now what we have is we can say, we stopped 50 attacks because our people were cyber vigilant. How cool is that? We told a story about our security awareness training. It worked. Our people are part of our human defense shield. Our people, things like that. It works. Uh, what about if we have a WAF, web app firewall, and we upgrade to a next gen WAF and put it on 50 internet facing applications? And our log tool could show that, hey, we blocked 100 web app attacks every day on our e commerce site. Now, what we're finding is that the money that's being spent is actually delivering value. Now, it's a little bit tough because it's return on security investment or ROSI, or what I call return on seatbelt investment. It's a little bit hard to prove that if you didn't put on your seatbelt, that your journey would have turned out differently. Unless, of course, something bad happened. And so as a result, we want to go ahead and create a mindset where cyber is in the business of revenue protection, much in the way that we buy insurances to protect our revenue flow. But here it's a little bit more tangible. Um, if Also think about scale. The thing is, is that it's really easy to think that you can do perfectly if there's only small things. What if you only had 10 cyber attacks a year? How many would you be expected to stop? Probably all 10, right? Because, come on, it's like 10 of them. But if you had 100,000 attacks a year, would you be expected to stop all 100,000, including zero days and people doing dumb things and Bobby the intern clicking on stuff? Uh, are you really resourced for that? Because now you're looking at the supply demand and you're changing the equation a little bit. Obviously, you want to go ahead and have a winning record. You want to be way up there, but you want to tell a story of what's working to stop the real world attacks. Um, sometimes you can neglect things. I think most of us own automobiles and let's say you finally get the car of your dreams, not the old beater car or the station car. I mean, I remember having an old, old Buick. I actually got it from one of the office coworker when I was up in Connecticut. She said, if you can start it, you can have it. And I remember I was out there in the rain down there uh, working on the car and I got it running and I ran for a little while. And then eventually I gave it to my brother and then he traded it for a guitar amp, but that's a different story. It tells you how much the car is worth. But the idea was when you get a really neat car and you love it, this is the car you want, and you're driving it, and then check engine light comes on. Mm, what are you going to do? Well, you should probably check the engine, right? Well, what if you don't? Well, let's say, for example, there's a lot of things that could cause what they call the idiot light to go on, but let's say it's low oil or oil is losing its viscosity or it's time to change your oil. It used to be 3,000 miles for conventional oil. I remember back in the 90s, I worked at a company that was in Rockville, Maryland. I lived in White Marsh, Maryland, 61 miles each way. Drove that five days a week, each way. So every month I had 3,000 miles on the car and I got really good. I could change oil faster than one of these 15-minute oil changes stuff. I dragged the ramps out, car up there, boom, 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 dropped the plumb, boom, boom, and, and it was done. But I kept that car running. It was, it was a Toyota Supra. I loved it. Finally, uh, sold to a guy who was going to work on it with his son. It had 217,000 miles on it and it still ran like a top. And that's because I kept really good care about it. Now, what happens if you have this car and we don't take care of it? When oil goes by, let's assume it doesn't necessarily leak out, but over time it's going to lose its viscosity. It's not going to be able to protect and it's not going to work forever. And eventually it's just not going to work at all. Now, how long before, if you don't change your oil, will you get total engine failure? Throughout script, they say 3,000 miles. Now it's synthetic oil, like 10,000. All right. So maybe 12, 15, actually it's estimated somewhere around 40,000 miles. You can push it. But it's not a good idea because you're going to have more and more wear and tear and things like that. And eventually you're going to have total engine failure. So if you ignore the check engine, right, 
and put yourself at risk. You put your engine at risk. And if you ignore it for too long, it's going to go down. Can you stretch it a little bit? Yeah. Is it a good idea? Maybe not. So what's the lesson? Um, if you have software, should you be updating it? Should you be checking it? The update software like comes on. Okay. Do you ignore it? Can you see software ages like milk, not like wine. It doesn't get better with age. And so as a result, we're going to find out that uh, we need to go ahead and take care of this stuff. We're going to end up with what's called a technical debt, where we get farther and farther behind the power curve, and it's really tough. Now, granted, it's sort of a negative metric, but there are some things that we can stretch due to budget. I'm talking to some companies now that uh, are saying in early 2024, they're already pulling back a little bit. Stock market's on a roar. Inflation seems to be going in business indicators, but they're, they're seeing signs of impending slowdown. And so what happens? Well, maybe we'll wait another year to update Windows 10 to Windows 11. We got till fall of 2025. But if you wait to the very last minute, there might be a difficulty in getting that done because something else might be taking place. And so what we want to do is come up with indicators which show preventative maintenance schedules that can help the organization and things like that. If we think about a couple other scenarios that could take place in terms of being able to take from a CISO our responsibility, our accountability, our authority, getting things done and making things happen, uh, think of a situation where a web page is hacked. Now, the responsibility, CISO's task with deploying firewalls, intrusion detection systems, other security measures, WAF, uh, things like that. But the accountability, what happens? If a successful cyber attack occurs on our web page, then the CISO is often held accountable for the breach. You need to go ahead and explain how it happened, the impact it had, the steps to remediate. As a CISO, I have to brief the board when things go wrong, so I try not to let them go wrong. What was authority did I have? In that case, the CISO needed to have the authority to conduct a thorough investigation, implement incident response plans, make decisions on whether to engage external cybersecurity experts, and this is just in response to the attack. Forget about the developers and people writing bad code and things like that. You need to be able to provide that authority and have that authority. Uh, if there's a a serious vulnerability in business app. The responsibility is the CISO identify and address the vulnerabilities through regular security assessments and again using our tools that we have, um, SAS, DAS, etc. If a serious vulnerability is exploited, though, the CISO is often held accountable. There's financial losses, regulatory fines, reputational damage, and things like that. So, what authority do you need to have as a CISO to be able to meet that accountability standard? The authority to prioritize patching, allocate resources for app security, enforce secure coding practices. A right, um, couple more and then we'll wrap up. How about a mismatch of responsibility and accountability and authority? So what happens if you have accountability without responsibility? The CISO is held accountable for data breach, it's caused by a lack of investment in cybersecurity infrastructure. And the responsibility for budget allocation is completely outside the CISO's control. That's a problem, and you can see that, and some of us might go, yeah, I can relate to that. Well, that's a mismatch, and that creates a danger for you personally as a CISO. How about accountability without authority? We had accountability without responsibility. CISO is responsible for cybersecurity, but it doesn't have the authority to enforce changes, uh, the authority to implement a company-wide security training program. No, you can't do that. What about it? No, you can't do any of that. If you're not given any authority, but you're held accountable, you're then the chief scapegoat officer and things like that. So the fix is to align and change the culture for what you're looking at in your organization. You need a strong organizational culture where cybersecurity is everybody's responsibility, not just the CISOs. 
have clearly defined roles and responsibilities. Each team member needs to know what it is. And really, you need to be an advocate for the necessary authority, not just for yourself, but for your teammates as well, who are given a position of responsibility and they're going to be held accountable. Make sure that your organizational leaders ensure the CISO has the authority needed to enforce your security measures effectively. Because we've seen in a couple of cases, like in October 22, Joe Sullivan, uh, you know, back when they had a, a breach back then uh, in 2016, it's uh, Uber, and he was considered found guilty of felony obstruction and misprison. Was he given the resources to do stuff? Well, that was kind of the argument in the court. How about more recently with Solar Winds and Timothy Brown, October 2023, uh, with the responsibility, the accountability, and the authority all lined up, and things such as that. So CISOs have to have a framework within the company for managing incidents. And then you practice that through tabletop exercises, but you want to have some specific protections around things like exculpation, indemnification, and insurance. Most C-level executives are indemnified or protected by their company. I think it's called exculpation. And that is not always offered to CISOs. If you are a C-level officer in writing as a CISO, you need to get that coverage because it's really important to have the legal protection, but also if you're ever in a situation where you end up like a couple of these gentlemen with legal charges, you might want to make sure that you can get your expenses advanced for legal costs because uh, saying, yeah, just turn in an expense report at the end of the case and we'll reimburse you within 30 days doesn't particularly make it. Okay, so let's wrap up. What I hope I conveyed with you is some of the important differences between responsibility, which is being the cause or the explanation of something, authority, which is your power to influence or command, and accountability, the obligation or your willingness to accept responsibility. And understanding the difference of responsibility, authority, accountability in your job, being able to ensure that these are balanced correctly, that you are not in a scapegoat position, but you're actually in a position where you can affect the changes for which you are responsible, then accountability is not such a bad thing because that represents what we consider to be the price we'll pay to be able to earn the power that they were given and the paycheck that we get. So hopefully you found some good ideas in this episode. And if so, please give us a like on your favorite podcast channel or give us a thumbs up or go ahead and subscribe to us on YouTube if you haven't already, because that's valuable to us in terms of getting our numbers up. Uh, go to our LinkedIn and see what we got for you. We always have really good information for you. My name is Jim Arcardi. I'm your host for this week. I hope you found this helpful. And until next time, stay safe out there.